Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play part of a conversation that we had on the Psychedelic Salon Live last Monday evening. Our guests that evening were Dr. Andrew Tatarski and Lakshmi Narayan, who have both been actively working to expand our community's knowledge about the medical potential of the Iboga plant, as well as ways in which its primary active component, Ibogaine, is having success in curing addictions, particularly opioid addictions. As I've mentioned in the past, I've been gravitating toward having all of the interviews for the Salon podcast be conducted in one of our live Salon gatherings, which take place at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time every Monday night. And what I've discovered in conducting interviews this way is that they become significantly better conversations if I'm not the only person asking the questions. As you will hear in a few minutes, there were some questions from our fellow Saloners that I think added a lot to the interview. And uh, they were questions that I hadn't thought of myself. So I think that as we get this format perfected over time, it's going to provide some really interesting and informative conversations, such as the one that we are about to join in right now. Mainly, you know, we've had one conversation about Ibogaine uh, uh, a number of months ago, and uh, what what you all are 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 doing is is uh, or working with, as I understand it, in addition to trying to get it reduced on the medical schedule, is you actually are uh, uh, working with people in uh, opioid reduction and uh, harm reduction, which, you know, is next to the environment is one of the biggest scourges that's going on in the world right now, at least in the U.S. world. So uh, maybe, uh, Lakshmi, if you would kind of introduce yourself and, and Andrew, and then uh, maybe we can, uh, I'll start with some questions, and I know our, our group here will have questions too. Okay, great. Uh, so can you hear me okay? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, uh, my name is Lakshmi Narayan, and I'm the founder and creative director of Awake Media and also the producer of a program called, a campaign called Iboga Saves, uh, whose intent is to spread the word and change the law around Ibogaine and Iboga. Uh, these, uh, for those who don't know what Iboga is, it's a root bark from uh, West Africa that has the amazing property of interrupting opioid addiction in a single treatment without withdrawals. And yet, and this quality has been known since 1962 when it was uh, uh, discovered by Howard Lotsov, who was a drug addict in New York who had the reputation of taking anything and somebody gave him Ibogaine and he, he and some friends took it and they were all heroin addicts and they were able to, they had no cravings when they came out of that session. So since 1962, Howard Lotsov has been, had been trying, he's now passed away, trying to get the medical establishment to do research, to follow up on it. And he knocked on many, many, many doors. And I, in a sense, I'm just picking up that, that same um, message and torch like many people who in the Ibogaine industry have done and are doing, including 
Dr. Andrew Tatarsky, who um, has a, has a, a different, uh, he comes from a clinical background, and he'll tell you about it. So uh, we're making a movie, Alberga Saves, and we're raising money to make the movie. And we also want to make an app called Reschedule Ibogaine um, that will take uh, petition signatures virally. And so that's, that's the plan. And we are also putting up a lot of informational blogs and, and on uh, awake.net um, along with uh, a directory of uh, practitioners. So the thing is, a lot of addicts have never heard of Iboga or Ibogaine. And so we want to get the word out to those people who will then travel to other countries to do it. And that's what's going on right now. Uh, let, let me be, ask you uh, to begin with, uh, Lakshmi, uh, how did you first develop an interest in it yourself? Well, um, I, I've been a, a psychonaut for 20 years. And um, I started doing, um, I'm a media person, I started doing uh, design work for psychedelic organizations to help them to uh, brand themselves so that they could be accepted by a mainstream audience. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I've done for MAPS and WVC and other organizations. So I was referred to Crossroads Ibogaine, who uh, had a psycho-spiritual weekend, which was not for addicts, although their main program was for addicts. It was a seven-day flood dose program. Um, so I was invited to do the psycho-spiritual weekend, which I did. Uh, and um, I was diagnosed with diabetes 2 just 20 minutes before, uh, before the treatment began in the blood test that they take. And uh, so I went in knowing that I was diabetic. And um, I took the Ibogaine, and during this 12 to 36-hour journey, I was, um, um, I was, honestly, I'm still a little dumbfounded and dumbstruck by the power of that Ibogaine experience. And I'm somebody who has a lot of experience with entheogenic medicines, but Ibogaine is like nothing I've ever experienced. <clears throat> And, and Dr. Tatarski, how did you how did you first uh, become involved in uh, Eva Game? Okay, and by the way, you can call me Andrew. I'm oh, more, okay. I'm okay. more comfortable that way. Okay. Um, so I'll give you a, a, a kind of a quick backstory um, about how I got to my interest in ibogaine. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've been working with people with drug problems for basically my entire career for over 35 years. And early on, I came to see firsthand how limited the disease model abstinence approach to treatment uh, is for the overwhelming majority of drug users. I saw that in my clinical practice. I saw that, you know, that most people don't want it. It doesn't help most people. In fact, some people really get hurt, you know, by a treatment that presumes that, they, that uh, addiction is a disease and that people need to commit to stopping or else they are considered to be failures. Uh, it, you know, there are so many, I think, problems with that model, which maybe is another, another podcast. But um, so because of that experience, I began to look around for alternatives and I discovered the harm reduction framework, which is a whole different way to think about supporting people in making positive change. That is that 
we, we um, don't require that people stop using or stop their behaviors in order to invite them into supportive uh, therapies and counseling relationships. Um, our job is to really support people in discovering what's true for them and what goals and what approach to positive change best suit them. And also, we think of problematic drug use or what we call addiction as being a multiply determined, you know, biopsychosocial spiritual process, really not a disease. And, you know, that naturally brought me to uh, develop a real curiosity in a whole range of different approaches to supporting people, uh, and including uh, the whole range of psychedelic uh, medicines um, and Iboga. And so as I became um, involved with the harm reduction and psychedelic communities back in the early 90s, I actually had the good fortune to meet Howard Lotsoff. Um, and Howard was one of the most wonderful, warm, generous, kind of humble human beings. And he told me, told me about his experience with Ibogaine. And so partly because at the time through the 90s and the 2000s, harm reduction was, and I think in many places still is, a very um, a controversial subject. I kind of stayed on the edges of the psychedelic and the Ibogaine world. World. But I met an increasing number of people who had very powerful, positive experiences with psychedelics in general and Ibogaine in particular. Um, the personal stories of people that have experienced what Lakshmi was talking about were just undeniably convincing that this is a wonderful, powerful uh, medicine that really needs to be uh, made available to people with a wide range of addictive issues and other issues. Um, I guess about three or four years ago, with all of the sort of the growing body of research suggesting what you know, traditional people have known for centuries, that psychedelics are powerful medicines for healing and spiritual growth and so on, had reached the pitch and the, you know, the popular uh, media was kind of getting this information out. I thought um, there's enough evidence to support, um, you know, main, you know, uh, credible professionals in coming out in support of the research. Um, and so I actually have been over the last few years increasingly public and uh, as an advocate uh, and a supporter of these medicines. Uh, three years ago, I was invited to present at the Global Ibogaine Conference in Tepoztlan, Mexico. And that was really my first immersion in the Ibogaine community. And I'll tell you, it was, it's a wonderful community um, because it's a community that honors diversity. Uh, you know, we might say that Ibogaine is a biopsychosocial spiritual medicine um, because it really addresses all of those dimensions and, and also provides a wonderful community for folks. Um, uh, one last thing, uh, and then I'll shut up. We can open up the conversation. I, um, about eight years ago, I started a center in New York City called the Center for Optimal Living. And this center is really a home and a platform for advancing harm reduction psychotherapy, integrative, our work is integrative harm reduction psychotherapy. And about three years ago, we opened up a very special program 
which we think is pretty unique, uh, called the Psychedelic Education and Continuing Care Program. Of course, because psychedelics are not FDA approved um, and not regulated, uh, we, we thought you know, the proliferation of underground psychedelic use may do wonderful things for some people, but it may pose tremendous risks for others. And so we thought there should be um, uh, a community or a space where people could come for knowledgeable, compassionate, supportive education and therapeutic services for all of the issues surrounding psychedelics. So we offer psychedelic integration services in groups and individually. Uh, we offer counseling on the front end. Like if somebody's curious, you know, should I be doing a psychedelic? How do I kind of uh, navigate all, you know, that the sort of potential pitfalls of underground uh, use? Um, and so in that context, we've seen um, a tremendous number of people and we've seen some people post-Ibogaine experiences, as well as people who have had ayahuasca experiences and, and psilocybin and so on. So um, something I feel very passionately about. Um, we need both because of the tremendous need to have uh, a wide range of effective help for people that are struggling with addictions, but also my sense is that Ibogaine has much more potential value for uh, lots of different kinds of people. Well, you know, Andrew, you, you've been, you, you say what I've been thinking for a long time, but you say it so much better than I can. And, yeah. and what, what is the, the, the name of the center again that you, you started? It's called the Center for Optimal Living in New York City. Uh, people can find us at centerforoptimalliving.com. Um, and... Um, you know, we're, we're a home, we're a hotbed of, of you know, sort of licensed, you know, um, legitimate professionals who are radical critics of the way that drug use and people who use drugs are treated in this society. And we're really advocating for a, a, a wide range of changes um, moving toward what we call compassionate pragmatism. You know, this, this is something that... Uh... I've been been kind of dreaming of and advocating for is is a, a true two pronged attack. One is is like what you're doing with the educational part, and the other is the community part, where where young people are learning that well, we have to kind of start creating our own rituals too. And you know that that uh, as Lakshmi can attest to, and you can too, Andrew, that you know twenty twenty five years ago you were lucky if you could find somebody to talk to that had tried one of these things before. And now at least uh, we're, we're getting a lot more, uh, uh, you know, traction. It seems like what kind of, of uh, uh, acceptance or, or uh, resistance did you get when you were first doing that as from your peers? You know, I'm, I'm in New York city and we're in a bubble because, um, uh, you know, I've been working uh, explicitly uh, advocating for harm reduction therapy for 25 years. And we've got a big, a, a large and growing community of professionals and um, lay people who have been embracing this approach in New York City. Um, 
And when we opened our psychedelic program three years ago, um, well, when I opened the center, which was based on harm reduction therapy eight years ago, um, I, it was a real experiment. I didn't know what to expect. You know, would it be too controversial? You know, essentially, we could say that the essence of a harm reduction therapy approach is we want to support people in developing their ideal relationships to substances as they define it. So we need to keep our agendas and our values out of the way to support people in their process. Now that, in a sense, I can say here, it's just been occurring to me, what we're doing in the therapy space is we're legalizing drug use. Um, it's not our job as, as you know, helping professionals to dictate uh, we're, you know, uh, what people should be doing uh, with, in their own relationships with substances. So I didn't know how it would work out, but I, I got to tell you that over the eight years, we have had no opposition in New York. We've had a growing amount of, of support from families, from individuals, from uh, other professionals, from college counselors. Um, and the same thing is true with our psychedelic program. When we opened it three years ago, I was afraid it might be too controversial and it might really uh, you know, threaten our center. I even uh, you know, consulted with my attorney. Um, and we've had nothing but support. So, you know, part of what, what, what our attitude has been is that we're not being defensive. We are not uh, being apologetic. We're saying, this is the state of the art. This work, you know, respectful, compassionate, supportive work for grown up people to support them in making healthy choices for themselves is what should be, um, you know, the way that all of these services are delivered. And it, it seems like the community agrees. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, Lorenzo, um, you didn't let me finish the point of what I was saying about Ibogaine and, and my first experience and why it was so amazing. Oh, okay. Why it was so amazing is that it took away my addiction to sugar and uh, it stays in your system for three months afterwards. And during that period, I was able to completely reverse my diabetes too. So Ibogaine is an amazing medicine on many fronts. And diabetes is a slow killer. We're not even talking about diabetes. But anyway, that was the point. Now, now, now was that with just one uh, experience with Ibogaine? One experience with Ibogaine, yeah. And did you, what, were there therapists there too, or was it just uh, a solo experience? No, no, there were other people there. There were doctors and nurses and people checking your EKG and monitoring you and several other people doing doing it. But I, I mean, as a therapist, were there people interacting with you? Uh, so it was a, an internal experience. It's an internal experience, and it uh, uses the model of uh, the computer. So you have images come at you like a slideshow or videos. It uses that same technological model that we're so familiar with. So... Um, it's a little bit different from normal experiences, um, normal psychedelic. I wouldn't call them normal, but, you know, <laughs> psychedelic experiences. The, the, uh, the only, I, I've never experienced it myself, but I've had, uh, I've talked several times with Giorgio Samarini uh, from Italy, who has uh, 
really done a lot of work with Ibogaine and, and uh, I talked to some of the people he worked with and then out here in California, I went to uh, a couple of uh, sessions that were, uh, uh, were heroin addicts that uh, it, one I went to in Hollywood that a bunch of uh, kind of uh, artistic uh, film people that have been heroin addicts had been to the, the clinic in Tijuana and uh, with one session have been cured. But you're the, it, I, I had heard about, uh, you know, personal experiences with, with uh, various addictions, but I'd never heard it about, about uh, uh, your, your, your case too, uh, uh, Lakshmi. That's, that's pretty amazing, I think. It's totally amazing. It's a slow killer, but it's a killer nevertheless. And there's also one case of a person who has uh, used Ibogaine for Parkinson's. Um, mm-hmm. And you know this person, Andrew? Um, yeah, his name is D. Yeah, and he's and he had a he doesn't like his name to be made public, but he's had a amazing uh, restoration of certain abilities in his body that were dying with Parkinson's. Yeah, so- I think there is a study um, that has demonstrated uh, at least supported uh, the idea that ibogaine may be an effective treatment for Parkinson's. You know, this, 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 this Parkinson's and diabetes is, is opens up a whole new vista for me because I could, you know, I could understand the opioid uh, addiction pathways and some of that, but uh, diabetes, Parkinson's, those are, are, are really different, uh, uh, you know, diseases that it seems like Ibogaine is, is really working at the, the core level of, of body regulation of some way. Uh, and it's, got to be done in the mind i would think hmm. i don't know that's, that's really fascinating I, I had never heard those stories before there's not enough stories like that out there because people are afraid to do ibogaine because it's so powerful and certainly not for something like diabetes so um, but the fact that the potential is there tells you so this is the other part of what i wanted to to share is that you could say that we have a psycho spiritual crisis right now because People don't have access to medicines that will take them into these realms of consciousness where you can heal trauma and soul shocking kinds of experiences. And there are so many of those. And this isn't just like one generation, it's generations and generations of people who haven't had that access. And what we're seeing in our culture right now, uh, the increase in mental health, the increase in imbalances and anxiety, etc. You can attribute it all to what Terence McKenna said was the forbidden fruit of antiquity. And that's what Iboga is. It's the forbidden fruit. And um, the Gabonese, they even uh, think of it as the world tree or the tree of life. So, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Hey, well, let let me go ahead. I've got some more questions, but let me open it up here to to some of the other people. Uh, uh, anybody here would like to uh, chime in here and ask a question while we uh, are here? Yeah, just just one question. Yeah, go ahead, James. Hi. Yes. Um, the difference is there a difference between aboga and ibogaine? Um, because I've I've gone in on an aboga experience, and it was a twenty four hour intensive experience that one can't ex- describe. Actually, it went on for months after that. But uh, I just wanted to, to uh, ask that question because, because I, I know ibogaine is a liquid. A boga is a root. It's like licorice. And um, anyway, that's, that's my question. Um, well, 
Uh, I'm not a doctor, but what I know about it is that iboga is the whole root. Uh, it's got several other alkaloids in it other than ibogaine. And ibogaine is the, is the primary alkaloid of the iboga root and it's extracted. Um, ibogaine can be had from other plants as well as iboga. Uh, you know, there's a plant called Boa which also has ibogaine in it. So ibogaine is the extract or the, uh, the primary alkaloid and iboga is the, is the root. They both deliver a similar experience, but I don't know enough about the delivery, Andrew. I think you're, you're the person to answer that. Yeah, I, I don't know any more than what you just shared. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I, think, but I think it should be mentioned that iboga, uh, the root, has been used uh, in traditional spiritual practice by the Bwiti in Gabon. So it, you know, has um, a whole history, um, you know, before ibogaine was discovered as an addiction in, uh, interrupter. And one thing that's quite interesting is that some of the um, uh, people who have been cured, if you can use that word, you know, by ibogaine, have gone back to um, Gabon to become Bwiti priests. And the Gabonese the Bwiti have been very accepting of Westerners, you know, Americans going back, uh, becoming priests and bringing the Bwiti religion uh, or spiritual practices to the United States. So it's a very interesting, um, you know, in a cultural exchange. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm curious, Andrew, uh, because I, first of all, I think that's really positive and it's exciting that they're being accepted. But I wonder also if we're in a danger of uh, uh, iboga tourism, like the ayahuasca tourism problem has uh, turned up. Are, are there a lot of people going back to Gabon? Um, I, d I don't think so, because, um, I mean, I, I just don't think that has been a phenomenon yet, uh, because I think ibogaine has been brought uh, to um, a number of places around the world. So I, I don't think um, Gabon is a place you would go if you wanted to get treated. Um, so if you were interested in the spiritual practice, um, you mentioned Daniel Pinchbeck. He his book, Breaking Open the Head, was about his trip to Gabon uh, and uh, for spiritual purposes. And um, I know from his book, he had a very challenging experience down there. He did. Uh, you know, this is not something that you're going to do for fun. <laughs> I mean, this is serious, serious business. Um, you're, you're, may, you may go back to Gabon for... Um, you know, for a very serious spiritual interest, um, or you might, you know, travel to Mexico or um, Canada or uh, where else? I think Portugal, South Portugal. Yeah, Australia um, and New Zealand have, you know, clinics that are offering ibogaine. Portugal. But like like you said, Andrew, this is this is really serious stuff. I. I, I have had uh, more than one opportunity to use Ibogaine to have the experience, but I've, I've denied, I've turned it down every time because I know the preparation going in and then the time afterwards. And I never had, I, you know, I wanted to commit, you know, a, a significant amount of time. 
because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm a psychonaut. I've done a lot of different things, but that's one thing that I think is, is uh, such an important uh, medicine that it should uh, definitely be treated as a, a very serious experience with a lot of uh, forethought. Well, somebody put it to me like this, that, that ayahuasca is here and ibogaine is up here. Uh, that that I mean, is what everybody tells me that is to use both of them, and I've never heard anybody disagree with that. <laughs> no, it's it's a huge electrical experience when you're having it. Um, yeah. Uh, although you know, in the in the Muiti villages, that there's over 200 villages that have um, uh, their own particular style of ritual. It's evolved. There's over 200 villages doing it in in, in Gabon. And there are plantations in Cameroon and other parts of the world. So um, I think that um, this is partly what we want to do is we want to spread the word that you can have this experience. But, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really tricky subject. And the reason is because of its uh, medical risks as well as its spiritual properties. And both of these make it a really naughty problem. Um, in terms of legislation, in terms of people embracing it as a, as a as a system to use for addiction, because without medical oversight, it can really be dangerous to do it. Unless you're doing it in the weedy context, where you're eating large quantities of root bark, which is really hard to swallow. So not many people are going to go in for it. So if you just look at this as saying, yeah, this medicine can could end the opioid ep epidemic if it was taken seriously, it could. But what would it actually take for that to happen? It would take a huge mobilization. It would take a, a, a paradigm shift in healthcare so that they accepted the body, mind, spirit dimension into the healthcare paradigm. And if you look at that and you'll see that, well, um, we've divided up everything that's medical and everything that's spiritual into two separate camps. One is religion, the other is corporate healthcare, well, how do you bring those two together again? You know, so it's really a problem. It's not an easy, easy thing. And I really don't know how it's going to happen exactly. We're hoping to influence it, but we don't know how. Well, I, I think you're starting, you know, in the right place with, you know, the preaching to the choir here, because we all uh, understand the importance of, of all kinds of psychedelic experiences because the body, mind and spirit, uh, being integrated is so important in, in all kinds of health, both mental and physical. Uh, as you, you mentioned in the, the beginning, something that kind of caught my attention because I know how difficult it is to kind of, to get any kind of a schedule change. You know, we've been working on that for years with various substances, but you said something about an app to gather signatures. I'd never really thought of that before. What, what is that that you're talking about? So uh, I had this idea of making an app called Reschedule Ibogaine and making it a petition app because you can now get signatures, you know, on, you can do that and it's legal. So uh, then it becomes a viral tool because anybody can download the app and sign and we want to collect signatures. I then found this thing called uh, Arrest API, which is in the White House. And it was put in by Obama, but it's still there. And if you collect 100,000 signatures and submit it through the API to the White House, they have to respond in writing. So this is my plan, that I want to collect 100, make the app, collect 100,000 signatures, and submit it. 
um, you know, if you have 100,000 signatures, a lot of other things can happen, but well, if, if you get that app developed, be sure to let me know. And, and I know that the people here in the salon will uh, pass the word. And there's, there's a lot of connections out of here, too. And you were just on Zach Leary's show. I know he would help uh, pass it out, too. You know, there's a lot of different ways we can get the word out. I really believe you can get 100,000 signatures. And I think more importantly, though, would be the press that you would get along with it. Uh, I don't have much faith that the government would respond uh, in any meaningful way to that. But if you did something like that, that's the kind of buzz you can get out. We get, uh, you know, Corey Doctorall or somebody that's writing for uh, Buzz, Buzz Fat Flash and, and uh, some of these other big publications. That uh, I think that if you get something like that going, if it does uh, take hold and catch, I think we can get a lot of publicity. And, you know, the opioid ec- epidemic is hitting people uh, in, in every economic strata, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the billionaires kids are having the problems the same as the poor people's kids. So, uh, this is something that's more, uh, to me, it's a matter of, uh, getting like you're doing, I guess, getting the information out and once people understand that there is a, a way that is not just a pie in the sky, but it, uh, there's a lot of documented, uh, uh, cases where cures or at least remissions at the very least have been taking place. So do, do you, do you care to talk about any of those examples of, uh, of, of, uh, you know, diabetes <laughs> just blows me away that it could do something with that. Uh, how, how about, about, uh, any young people that have had an opioid epidemic, uh, addiction that have been, uh, had that broken? Well, um, I, I just wanted to mention before I speak to that, um, that MAPS, who I, I, I imagine everyone here knows what MAPS is, they are just starting up a study of Ibogaine. So that is a very, very important development. And, you know, it's likely that that will be something that will get uh, press coverage and get it out there. Because uh, this is the first Ibogaine study, I think, in many, many years. And, you know, MAPS knows how to work media. Um, so that's an important thing. There's there's a lot of stuff going on uh, in the background that 20 years ago, you know, nobody knew what iboga was. Nobody knew what MDMA was. They'd heard about ecstasy is all. And I think today, thanks to, to MAPS, to Hefter, to the work that you're doing, to the Ketamine Association, all of this is becoming a lot more mainstream uh, than it was uh, certainly even a decade ago. And so you can talk about these things. And I think that's uh, definitely a step in the right direction. But now, yeah, I think uh, Kenya had a question. Maybe we'll get. Yeah, somebody has a question. Yes, it's me. Sorry. um, I'm a substance abuse counselor here in Arizona. And um, I was wondering, how do you talk to other professionals about this without them thinking you're out there? Uh, that's interesting. I've been, I've been dealing with that issue for all the time that I've been doing media. And I think you have to find ways to reframe ideas that people have. And you just have to figure out what it is, what is it that they think about it and how do you reframe it in ways where they understand that it's a medicine. And, uh, I've been calling it entheogen so that I can remove it from the psychedelic, um, framework, even though I won't, I don't stay away from using the word psychedelic once in a while, but I call it entheogen because that at least gives you an opening and they haven't immediately prejudged it. 
I, I, I agree with your, your approach there, Lakshmi, that, that uh, it's to, to establish a, a rapport with somebody, uh, you, it's, easy, it's better to not have that wall up ahead of time. And Iboga, it seems to me, comes in a class by itself because it hasn't had the taint of uh, the psychedelic world and all like that. It's an, a, a plant that comes from Africa, and you don't hear about psychedelics come from Africa very often. And so I think it's a, a good approach to talk about a, a, an herb from Africa that is working with addiction. Andrew, you want to say something? Yeah. Um, a couple of thoughts. Um, you know, one of the best ways to influence people is, I think, sort of picking up on what you were saying, Lakshmi, is to engage people in a kind of collaborative inquiry. This is actually uh, the central part of our harm reduction therapy, which is, you know, we want to listen empathically to people to kind of get their perspective. We want to be curious about it. You know, we want to reflect empathy, like I really hear where you're coming from, so that people don't feel challenged, don't feel uh, on the defensive. Um, and then we can raise questions. We call it a collaborative inquiry. Well, kind of let's think more together about these issues. Like, how's that working? And, um, and then we can sort of think together to educate ourselves, to look at the research. Um, you might say, hey, I, you know, I found out about this amazing stuff. I mean, there's research on it. Uh, and then telling stories. Um, and, th and this is, you know, when you asked the question, Lorenzo, about young people, there's a woman that came to mind that I know Lakshmi also knows, a woman named Juliana Mulligan, who, who I can talk about because she has come out publicly about her Ibogaine experience in Women's Day magazine. Uh, if you Google Juliana Mulligan, uh, Women's Day magazine, you're going to see a picture of her, let me, like, with her f arm like this, and she's got the ibogaine molecule tattooed on her bicep. And um, she is one of the most delightful, you know, lovely, brilliant, you know, wonderful people. And she talks about having had a seven-year serious heroin uh, problem uh, living on the street. She was, you know, uh, arrested um, where they detoxed her uh, against her will in prison and she went through the worst hell, um, you know, kicked out of her house. Just, she calls it seven years of higher education in the nature of addiction. So she's been able to spin it in a very positive way. But she had an Ibogaine experience that nearly did kill her. I think she cardiac arrested five times during the, uh, the session and luckily they were able to bring her back but she's one of the best advocates for it because you know she's left her addiction behind and um, she's in school now I mean she's living I think an increasingly wonderful life and she credits Ibogaine with that so I think telling stories um, of real people there are a lot of videos out there there's videos of Dimitri Mugianis who was another important figure in the in this world uh, work he had a 15-year addiction to crack cocaine and heroin um, he went through the treatment and this is there's video of this he was interviewed two days later he was like I can't believe it I have no urges I have no craving I have no desire for drugs this is like whacked what's going on here 
But these are the stories we hear over and over again. Share them. Share the video with your colleagues um, and have a discussion group about it. Um, uh, the people have convinced me. I've just known more and more people with these seemingly miraculous stories. The thing is, and maybe we can discuss this, I'm sure, Lakshmi, you have ideas about this. Like with any psychedelic-assisted treatment, it's not a silver bullet. It's not, you know, I mean, you know, the benefit that we get from these things needs to be, you know, wrapped in supportive relationships, in um, psychedelic integration or aftercare work. People need communities around them uh, to support, you know, the changes. Um, it's also else, relationship. Yeah. yeah it's also a relationship. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a relationship with the with the substance because what people find is they'll take it one time and it'll interrupt their addiction, but and they might uh, you know begin to see what the root cause of their problem is. But if they've had a trauma that is from childhood or from a long time, it's not gone in one treatment. You realize that you need to go within again. You need to have maybe another kind of psychedelic experience maybe with ibogaine or with somebody something else so what are you doing you're changing your relationship to substances in general your addiction but also to substances and to how you and to your own psyche you know you're developing a dialogue within so it just takes time the whole thing takes time i i have a quick question for you guys um can you guys hear me all right yeah kevin go ahead all right so so I know in our, our model here in the, in the U.S. at least, is a lot of addicts, uh, especially long-term addicts, um, are pushed towards longer-lasting opioids like methadone and suboxone and things like that. And I've heard that ibogaine cannot break through with the longer-lasting opioids like it can with uh, shorter-lasting like heroin or morphine or oxycodone or something like that. I just didn't know if you guys could speak to that at all and, and what is done if that is the case with, you know, the masses that are being sent to clinics and being put on these medications and how Ibogaine might be able to help those folks as mm -hmm. well. You, you want to speak to that, Lakshmi? No, I, I don't know enough about it. Okay. Um, well, you know, there, there are a lot of important issues in what you're raising. Um, first of all, I think it's important to note that these medication-assisted treatments, methadone and suboxone, um, are the most life-saving treatments for people that have had long-term um, opiate uh, addictions. So the research suggests that this is the best treatment for somebody uh, statistically if you want them to stay alive. Now, that that doesn't that doesn't mean and i think it's also important to distinguish between addiction which is problematic drug use and a dependence on methadone or buprenorphine which basically like insulin takes care of the physiological piece it doesn't take care of the psychological and the social pieces and what, what a substitution treatment like that can do is stabilize somebody so you can address a lot of the other issues. And then people may say, now I want to go off it. Or like, you know, like, like um, you know, SSRIs for depression, 
it's a personal choice. Some people want to stay on them forever. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Other people are like, no, I want to get off the medication. I want to be drug free or I want to be, you know. Um, and what we can do in this is we can help people figure out how to negotiate that. But for people who want to get off it, I'm not sure about methadone and buprenorphine. I have seen some stories of methadone, people dependent on methadone, who have been able to detox with ibogaine. Um, I, I think suboxone might be more complicated. But, if, but what people can do is if they're on methadone, if they're on an opiate that, that you cannot detox from on ibogaine, what you can do is transition to a shorter acting uh, opiate. And then um, that could be sort of the interim step toward ibogaine. So there's a lot of options there, yeah. Okay. There are pre-programs that will help you to do that and to detox before you go to the clinic or wherever you're doing it. Yeah. So, they, so you would wanna, if you, if you or one wanted to have this treatment, you know, you'd want to uh, consult with medical people who are really expert. I'm a psychologist. I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not an expert in that area. But, but you know, the more reputable cl clinics all have highly knowledgeable, experienced medical people that will help, you know, counsel people through that, those questions that you're raising. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Sure. And, and, you know, you, you both have made a, a good point, an important one tonight about the fact that, that this isn't something that is done casually by people that don't know what they're doing, that you really need a medical staff uh, there uh, that knows what they're doing and can uh, provide assistance if uh, an emergency happens. Of course. And, and also in terms of the medical risk, um, there's a pre-screening always, at least in reputable clinics. Um, where uh, there, there are people, you know, if people have certain heart uh, issues, they may be counseled not to get the treatment because there's too much of a risk. Um, now, the other thing is, um, you know, like in the psychedelic medicine world at large, it's like the Wild West, I think. So there are lots and lots of disreputable practitioners. Yeah. Uh, some people call these drive-by clinics. Like, you know, you go in, you give them your money, and when they're done, they throw you out on the sidewalk, sometimes literally, you know, um, with no money. So if you're going to do it, you've got to be really educated. Um, ICRs in, in Europe um, is one place that is very knowledgeable about this. Claire Wilkins, who is one of the, you know, has, been one of the longest, um, she's had some of the longest, the most experienced in doing this is a person that I always go to, Claire, uh, if I want any advice about, you know, how to, who's, who's reputable and who's not. So you really want to do your homework if you're, you know, considering uh, a treatment. I started a directory on awake.net of a few reputable clinics. Um, so you can start there if you like and, and check them out. Uh, what is the URL again, Lakshmi? Awake.net. But uh, uh, yeah, I looked at I looked at the movie, and I recommend that people take a look at that. Uh, I will I'll see that the uh, the link is on the website when we do the uh, podcast of this too. Uh, but on on your website, I noticed that you have uh, 
uh, a place to access uh, some reputable practitioners. Uh, do you want to talk about that? Well, part of the part of the reason uh, when we started to put this campaign together, we realized that not only did we need to get the word out, but with 200 people almost dying every day, we needed to give people access to practitioners. And just like uh, Andrew was saying, it's like a wild west out there, and there are clinics which you know that's totally unregulated. So um, there are people, there are addicts who will go, uh, former addicts who will do ibogaine become completely enthusiastic about it and want to share it with other people who are addicted. They'll start a clinic, you know, and then they'll be doing, uh, doing this. But what happens is the, is the pressure of making a living might make them be a little lax about the standards of admission. And they might, you know, it's almost like they, maybe they don't mean to, but they might soften the, the entry, uh, entry, uh, restrictions or the, the the things that the health conditions and that's what happens that's why there are fatalities I believe um, you know Ibogaine is not um, that much more dangerous than a lot of medical drugs that are used within the healthcare system that and so you, you know that the danger can be regulated if it was legal mm-hmm. Well, you know, it, it sounds like the situation is, is similar to in the, the particularly the early days of ayahuasca and even today to where, uh, and, and I can relate to it to a degree that you have an experience, you've never had anything like this before and you become evangelical about it, you know, and, uh, but if you're, if you get too evangelical before you've, you've gone through the, the, uh, apprenticeship, that's when you can get other people in trouble as well. And, you know, it's like with ayahuasca, I, I, uh, I, I only did it with, uh, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to be in a group with, with a Peruvian Ayahuascaro who had come up and, and we could do it in authentic uh, ceremonies. I wouldn't really trust some North Americano uh, who had done ayahuasca four times and he's running ceremonies. And, and it sounds like you, if you're not careful, you can get into a situation like that with Iboga as you can with ketamine or anything else. And so uh, once again, it's, it's a question of uh, doing your homework and talking to people who know these people who've had an experience, you know, that don't just go out to the internet and, <laughs> and, and uh, contact the first one you can find, because uh, it's a process that, that should take some time to, uh, to do it right. And, and actually the people who would be searching for a boga uh, may not essentially be, essentially be the people who are addicted, but it may be their loved ones who are caring for them and worrying about them and, and looking for things. And, uh, would you have any uh, advice for somebody who, who does have a, a, a loved one who is addicted and, and is kind of out of control? Uh, if you could find, if, if I was in that situation, I found uh, what I would consider a reputable Iboga uh, uh, clinic, how, how would you approach uh, an addict that uh, was not responding to you and your family, essentially? Well, I'm not a doctor, but what I've heard from people who run clinics is that uh, even though iboga can can interrupt addiction, uh, for it to be a lasting recovery, the addict uh, needs to want it. Want the other person who's addicted needs to want it. So you know you can force somebody oh. to the clinic, but it's not gonna um, it's not gonna last. I've heard that from um, several people who mm-hmm. have had clinics. Um, can I, I, this is, 
this is uh, sort of hinges on what my life's work has become all about, <laughs> which is that um, people who are addicted or, or are struggling with problematic relationships to substances are suffering. If you're not suffering with your drug use, your drug use is not problematic. And then I would say, leave the person alone. You know, human beings have the right to make choices about what should have. I believe they have the divine right to make choices about what to put in their bodies. But people who we might call addicted are struggling, they're suffering. And they may not be ready to go to an Ibogaine clinic. They may not be ready to stop. And I, want, and I would argue that the data suggests the majority of people that are engaged in high-risk behavior or problematic behavior are not ready to stop. So we need to normalize. That's one thing, to tell the loved one. If your addicted loved one is not ready to stop, that's normal. And this is the essence of harm, a harm reduction approach or philosophy for me. We need to start where that person is ready to start. We need to support them wherever they're ready to begin their journey. The biggest problem is when you start trying to get somebody to do something that they're not ready to do, you set up a battle. And that breaks down, that, that can wreck a relationship. So we often need to reassure the, the loved one that your drug using loved one is suffering and what we need to do is support you in developing a relationship where you can, a mutually supportive relationship, where you can actually begin a conversation about what are you ready to do? What do you feel like you need to do? What positive steps are you ready to take? And, um, and, I, and I love to use the analogy of exercise because everybody understands, we all know that that frequent exercise is one of the healthiest things we can do. The overwhelming majority of us are not doing it on a regular basis. How do we get ourselves or our loved ones to begin exercising? We don't drag them to the freaking gym, right? We don't get a, 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 you know, a, a bunch of big goons to drag you to the gym. You know, what we do is we try to figure out what are the obstacles, how can we maybe reward ourselves or the people we love for buying a, a, a set of sneakers or take a tour of the gym? So let's begin a conversation, begin to educate ourselves, begin to think about what's, what are the obstacles, begin to come up with solutions. Um, we might now watch some videos together about Ibogaine. We might watch Lakshmi's video uh, or read the story about Juliana so that um, I think it's, we, we wanna help people in a slow process toward that ultimate positive change that we all you know, want to make in our lives. Uh, and and one, one other question, I guess it's not really worth asking now that uh, you've talked about Parkinson's and diabetes, but does, are there, are there uh, cases where alcoholics have been cured for foot and remission, I should say? Uh, I believe so, I believe that Ibogaine has worked for alcoholism, although uh, Dr. Polanco of Crossroads says that he would not recommend Ibogaine as the first drug of choice for, al for alcoholism. And I'm not sure what the reasons are for it medically, but uh, he says there are other ways, uh, you know, because Ibogaine is a hard medicine, it's, it's hard to go through and it has all these 
um, other potential medical risks. He, I think with opioid addiction, it does what no other medicine can do. And that's why it's such a boon. And uh, there's never been a time <laughs> when it's more necessary than right now, too. It's, uh, it's hitting so many people. Does anybody, we're, we're at the end of our hour here. Does anybody uh, have any other questions before we uh, kind of wrap it up? Or Okay, well, well. I just wanted to chime in and say that it's interesting seeing the correlation here. Um, you know, for me, I've never had an Ibogaine experience myself. I've always been interested. I actually discovered it through Daniel Pinchbeck's book years ago as well. Um, but to see and be a part of this community and kind of trying to spread awareness about what these various psychedelic medicines can do for all sorts of ailments, physical or spiritual or otherwise, I think it's interesting to see Ibogaine kind of take uh, its its place, sort of answering the demand of this epidemic that we're in. And, you know, just listening to you guys speak about this, um, it's very curious to see how I think maybe quicker than we may realize um, it could become prevalent because of exactly what it treats and people going through, you know, years of struggling and medicines, whether it is the Suboxone and the methadone or, you know, going to a therapist and all these other things that, you know, like you just said, Lakshmi, that it's happens to have this miraculous effect, particularly on breaking that habit of opioid addiction. And, you know, it's, it's, for me, it was interesting to see how, this sort of fringe psychedelic medicine may now find a forefront. Um, So yeah, I just wanted to comment. You know, Chris, that's a really, really uh, good observation. I hadn't thought of it until you started talking about it in that, you know, 20 years ago when I first heard about Iboga, uh, there was no opioid epidemic. There was a lot of heroin usage and there was a lot of people with, with heroin problems. But now it's reached down to the teenage level with the opioid epidemic. And as you just pointed out, at the same time that has, has risen to the foreground, all of a sudden here comes Iboga. It's like the plant knew that she was or he was needed. I understand Iboga is a grandfather and uh, ayahuasca is a grandmother is what I've been told. But in any event, I think these plants know more about what's going on than we ever give them credit for. And uh, we need to, to honor them for that. So, Andrew and uh, Lakshmi, do you have any final words you'd like to uh, leave us with? Well, um, just that, um, please support our campaign. We're going to be putting out another Kickstarter soon. We're trying to raise money to make this movie. And it's really important for everybody, for culture, to learn about this medicine and learn how wonderful it is and uh, support the, the socio-political change that would be needed in order for it to be available to us for our own spiritual evolution. So... You have a website. Uh, how do you keep? How do we keep track of what you're up to? Um, you can go to awake.net, and that's my website. And there's um, a bunch of blogs about ibogaine, a directory of iboga practitioners, and uh, the latest uh, uh, Kickstarter will be on there. And uh, and Ed, it's it's a really uh, rich site. There's all kinds of information on there, uh, including that uh, a really good uh, short movie right in the beginning that's uh, give you a lot of information. But there's all kinds that I've only spent about an hour on that website so far. But there's a lot of information there, so uh, I'll link to it again in, in uh, good. the program. I, w- I want to share that um, 
Uh, I was honored to have just been invited to start writing a blog for psychologytoday.com, and I posted my first post today. Nice. So my blog is called Beyond Disease, um, uh, Rehumanizing Our View of Addiction. And, you know, what I really believe is that um, we need uh, this rehumanized uh, view of addiction as a complex process. Um, and I, I think that, that that new view of addiction is very consistent with, um, with, with what Ibogaine does and other psychedelics. Because as we know, it's not just psychedelics don't just affect the body. They affect the mind and the spirit. And, um, you know, th this transformational experience uh, can be very healing for addictive process. And I will be doing some blog posts on Ibogaine and psychedelics. Lakshmi and I talked about possibly collaborating on some things. So, um, you know, I intend to bring the conversation about psychedelics and Ibogaine um, into the blog. Awesome. So, well, if, if you and Lakshmi will keep me informed about this and send me links, I'll, I'll keep publicizing them here. And then, you know, in, in a few months, as you guys get closer to your video or, or have another uh, milestone or something you'd like to talk about, I'd love to have you back here and, uh, uh, you know, to keep people informed. Because, uh, you know, like I just said in the beginning, next to the environment, uh, at least in the United States, uh, when it comes to the future of young people, the opioid epidemic is coming in right in close to number two because we're losing so many young kids and, and particularly in the poorer neighborhoods. Uh, just because they're poor doesn't mean they're not really bright and, and we're losing some great minds. So uh, I do want to keep this at the forefront of uh, our listeners here in the podcast. And uh, I certainly appreciate your time being here and uh, look forward to the next time that we can do this. So uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you very Thank much for you. having us. It's a pleasure. Aloha. Aloha. <laughs> Keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. In the program notes for this podcast, which you will find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've added some links to the websites that were mentioned in this interview. And if you follow those links, you will most likely be able to find whatever information and connections you're looking for when it comes to the world of Ibogaine. And while I realize that there won't be many of our fellow saloners who ever have an Iboga experience, however, I do believe that this information could be vitally important to somebody who's trying to kick an opioid addiction or if you know somebody who is in that situation. And the important information here is that there actually is a cure that can save them from the torment they're now experiencing. So even if this information isn't something that you can use right now, be sure to file it away in the back of your mind should you ever have the need for it in the future. And by the way, I'll be hosting another live session tonight and I hope to see you there. For tonight's salon, I plan on returning to the conversation that we started a couple of weeks ago in which, well, I'm trying to figure out how and where I'll be spending the final 20 years or so of my life and since I'm already 76 years old, you can see that I remain very optimistic about how long I'm planning to stay around on this little blue planet. 
And already, some of the suggestions that have come up are beginning to change the way that I'm thinking about、uh, what some may think of as their long, boring final years. Not me. I plan on making these next 20 years some of the most exciting, fun, and interesting times of my life. And I hope that you'll be spending them with me here in the Psychedelic Salon. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>